So it's 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 29 on 319. Elijah at Mount Carmel. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of Yahweh. The God who answers with fire, he is God. All the people answered, that sounds good. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he has wandered away. Or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping, and he'll wake up. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears, according to their custom, until blood gushed over them. All afternoon, they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no sound. No, no one answered. No one paid attention. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask, and God will give life to him to those who commit sin that doesn't bring death. There is sin that brings death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that does not bring death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. It's good to see you this morning as we uh, have our final flourish, pardon the pun, 
uh, in 1 John. This is our final time in this letter. It's been an extraordinary ride as we've set to seek to uh, see what it looks like to be rooted in the truth, to grow in love. Um, little insight into me, I love top fives. I have a top five for just about everything, top five movies, top five books. I've got top five smells. Um, I've got top five Sydney tourist attractions. What I want to share with you before we get into this word today is my top five moments in one John. Okay, they're going to come up on the screen. Um, my top five moments. There we go. Next one. Next one. Here we go. Here we go. Well, oh, it's a bit cut off. <laughs> 1 John 2 verse 1 is one of my favorite verses. 1 John 2 uh, verse 1. Uh, my little children, I'm writing you these things that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I love that. Uh, we have Jesus. If we do sin, we've got cover. We've got the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood. The next one, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. Uh, adoption is one of the highest privileges of knowing God, of the gospel. And that captures us. We are God's children if we're in Jesus Christ. I love that. The top five always has to have a cliche, okay? Cliche, 1 John 3, 16. Anywhere there's 3, 16 in the Bible usually means there's a cracking verse to read. Three, you know, John 3, 16, 1 Timothy 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16. Here, here's the cliche. Um, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. 1 John 5, 1 is my fourth Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. It's a bit quirky, but it's a beautiful moment. Those who are born of God love God's kids as well. That's basically what that one's saying. Uh, and the final one is 1 John 2, 28. I love it. So now, little children, remain in him, so that when he appears, we have, may, may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Um, Looking forward to that great day when God comes back in his son, Jesus Christ. There's my top five. You can talk about your top five with me over supper or over morning tea. Let's pray as we come before God's word this morning, this final part. Let's pray. Father, again, we are your sheep. You are our great shepherd. Father, your sheep hear your voice. Father, would you speak to our hearts and our minds, and renew us in your grace again this morning so that we may know your grace deep in our bones again. And Father, that would cause us to know how much you love us, to remind us of the confidence we can have in you. And Father, that we would be men and women utterly devoted to serving you and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, we would pray this morning that by your spirit and in your power, we would see Jesus, we would hear Jesus, and we would love Jesus this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My big idea for this morning is this. Radically rooted in God's heart means you can pray confidently, you can learn securely, and be utterly devoted to Jesus. I think you probably experienced that terrible thing uh, when relationships just kind of degenerate into legal word games. Uh, I wonder when your last relationship went a little bit like that. Maybe you're in one right now. Maybe it's with your boss at your workplace. Uh, you're beyond haggling, you're beyond misunderstanding, you're beyond pleading with each other, you're just in this like legal word dance with each other. The boss says something, the employee tries to pin the boss down, then the boss evades, then you're scrutinising the email chains to see who said what to who. 
The worker promises something. The boss asks if the promise has been kept. The, re, the, the worker reinterprets the promise, and then you're back into the email chain again. Happens between husbands and wives, between spouses. A couple agrees on X, and then A reneges. B accuses A and says to B, well, what I really meant by X was X plus 3. In fact, I really meant Y, and you really should have known that all along. It happens in elections. Love me, says the politician. I will give you X, Y, and Z plus A, B, and C. And guess what? I won't even tax you. Well, then, after the election, what I really meant was, and it really is quite different. The problem with these legal word games is they all have one thing in common. They lose each other's hearts. A gap is crept in amongst all the words. We no longer trust the other. We suspect that the other doesn't hear us anymore. The other doesn't care for us anymore. Worse still, the other doesn't love us anymore. I want to look at these final words of John's first letter with this idea in mind. Many initially find this to be a strange conclusion to this letter of 1 John. Among other things, it kind of, there's a risk that we might end up in legal word games with this last section. Have a look at verses 14 and 15 with me in your text on page 1122. Now, this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, We know that we have what we've asked him for. Well, I've asked for something according to God's will. Well, why don't I have it? Has God shifted the goalpost a little bit and he's changed his will and I've now got to guess what that is? Why won't he listen to me? There's a sin that leads to death in verse 16. There's a sin that doesn't lead to death in verse 17. Do I just avoid the sin that doesn't lead to death and just get away with the other ones? You see, the potential is we can get legally argumentative about this passage and get caught up in all the words. But if that happens, you and I won't give our hearts to God. And we'll begin to think that maybe I've lost a place in God's heart. And that would be a terrible way to end what is such a beautiful letter, an extraordinary letter that that John has written to us. Firstly, John wants you and I to know, if you're in Christ, that you have a radically beautiful place in God's heart. You're radically rooted in his heart. Have a look at what God tells us in verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And it turns out in verse 20 of our passage that having eternal life, having life forever, means having a relationship with a person, a personal relationship. The end of verse 20. We are in the true one. That is, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I reckon you'll strongly prefer that, being in God, being in eternal life, than having all these legal word games. To be in the true God, in his eternal heart, you can come no closer to God than to be in his eternal life. This letter, as I've read it, as we've been studying it, reads entirely unlike any other standard kind of religious caricature in the history of the world. Not once does John frighten us into action. We never hear lists of jobs we have to do. We hear no threats that God rejects those who underperform. In fact, we've heard the very opposite, that 
following Jesus Christ is not to do with our performance, it's all to do with Jesus' performance. John actually opposes all that kind of fear. God is love, John writes, chapter 4, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 16. And he says, knowing that perfect love, that drives out fear. John tells us in chapter 3 about wrong kinds of love, when we love experiences, things, uh, status, and that displaces our love for God, his son, and each other. And he shows the way of release from those false loves into this love that is based on truth. And knowing that truth grows love in us and it drives out fear. See, John lands this letter with his readers, you and I, in Christ, as dear to God as his son. John lands this letter with his readers as dear to himself as Jesus Christ, his only son, is dear to him. Do you get that? With the same eternal life as the son. So we would do well not to play legal games with these final words. Because these final words explore what it means for you and I to be close to God, in his heart, rooted deeply in his heart, as deep in his heart as his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in him. John writes these words not to bewilder us, but to assure us, to send us out into the world confidently, knowing God as Father. And you can see his heart all the way through this last passage with this repeated phrase, we know, we know. Have a look with me, verse 13. John writes, it's his purpose statement. He writes, so that you may know you have eternal life. Verse 16, verse 15, sorry. We know that he hears us. We know that we have what we ask for. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Verse 19, we know that we are of God. We are children of God. And verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know the true one. You see, the Son of God, Jesus, just simply takes the guesswork out of God the Father. You see Jesus, you see the Father. Takes the guesswork out of him. The Son gives understanding so we may know the true, real, living God, our maker, not some God that we just kind of make up in our minds, but the true living God. The Son of God gives the antidote to bewilderment, to fear, to distance, to distrust of God. And so flowing from this, John gives us three key areas of confidence that you and I can have as we go into the world. He tells us we can be confident in prayer. We can be confident in prayer. He tells us how we can learn securely not to sin, but be like Jesus. And he tells us finally how we can be utterly devoted to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. So firstly, in order, have a look at me, that being rooted in God's heart means we can pray confidently. Verse 14 and 15, have a look. Now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that we, he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. These verses are all about confidence, brothers and sisters. Some of us find confidence harder than others. I know that. Some of us will always find confidence really hard, particularly when it comes to prayer. But you can be more confident when you know where you stand with someone. But when it comes to prayer, you may go down this kind of traditional line of doubt. When John says, we have whatever we ask of him, but you say, I've prayed and nothing's happened. What's wrong with me? Does God hear everyone but me? 
Or maybe I have to guess his will correctly before I pray. And right away, the legal word game starts dancing around in your mind, rapidly dissolving your confidence in God. But neither God nor John are messing with us at this point in this letter. Because he gives us that certainty. We know that he hears us, says John. It helps for us to remember that in the ancient world, people had absolutely no confidence whatsoever that the gods heard them. Did you catch from our reading in 1 Kings chapter 18? Those characters who shouted louder and louder and louder, trying to kind of get the gods of the Baals to kind of hear them and respond. And, you know, Elijah starts going, are they asleep? Are they at the supermarket? Are they not listening? Are they unable to do that? Slashing themselves with swords and spears and shouting louder and louder in the hope that the gods would hear them. The gods just don't hear you in ancient times. You come into the New Testament and people are still calling out, hoping that the gods would hear them. Paul lands in Athens in Acts chapter 17 and there are gods and temples and altars everywhere and they're so desperate that the gods would hear them, they build a temple to the unknown, an altar to the unknown God, hoping to kind of catch it all in one big foul swoop. They're still not listening. The New Testament letters, this letter of 1 John says there's a spiritual arms race going on at the time. The spiritually big ones try to impress God with all their loudness and shouting and activity and leaves the spiritually small feeling hopeless and helpless. In the ancient world, the problem was the gods don't hear. They don't listen. They don't care. And a lot of people will struggle with this. I know some of you think like that. God doesn't care. Either because you're not sure that God is there or because you feel very small in the spiritual arms race. But in Christ, we know that God, our Father, hears us. He hears us because we're in his heart. Just as God the Father hears the prayers of God the Son, he hears us because we're in Christ. Just as Jesus can cry out, Abba, Father, so we, by faith in Jesus, have the same privilege to cry out, God, our Father, and he hears us. In verse 20, we know that because the Son of God has come. He's given us access to the Father. Okay, Simon, I get that, but what about that whatever or that sort of if clause in this passage? Whenever we ask anything according to his will, does that wreck it? Do I have to guess God's will perfectly first? I don't think so. I don't think this is meant to turn things into a legal kind of loophole or find an out clause here, anything like that. It's just an observation that matches our experience of all relationships. When we're talking to anyone, we never ask things for things that they are opposed to. That damages the relationship. We ask for what matters to them. It's the same with God. God wants the very best for us, his people, his children. And so what John is pushing us to see here is that God wants us to pray things according to his will. God wants what's best for us, and we ought to ask him to give us what's best for us. And so he pushes us here to pray according to God's will. And sometimes I think we think, I don't really know what God's will is. I've got to guess what God's will is and hope that it sort of comes out of the sky. No, God has told us what his good and perfect will is. Ultimately, it's that we would be like Jesus, have his mind, have his heart, But as I track through the scriptures, I see all over the place what God's will is for his people, Christians. 
You could pray that by doing good, you could silence the talk of ignorant, foolish people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. You could pray to rejoice more, to give thanks a whole lot more. 1 Thessalonians 5. You could pray to be sexually pure so that you won't wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister or other person. 1 Thessalonians 4. You could pray against drunken debauchery in your life. Ephesians 5. You could pray that you and others would be rescued from sin. Galatians chapter 1. And for an, for an end to the kind of false pride that deludes us in Romans chapter 12. See, all those things are in our New Testament, in the Bible, that tell us what God stands for, what God loves, and how he wants us to be, his people. Pray for the kind of rescue that will happen on the last day when Jesus comes back, John chapter 6. This is explicitly God's will for our lives. And they're all basically, if you want one word to summarise what God's will is for our life, it's love. Out of the truth of God grows love and God wants us to embody that love in all kinds of ways for the good of our own lives but for the good of others and God's glory. And So as it is in this letter, simply ask God for love because God is love, that God would grow love in you. See, I have a hunch as I talk to people around church, that we really haven't tested how much God likes to answers, answer prayers that are according to his kind of revealed will. We often, we're often so thing-focused in our prayers, we're event-focused in our prayers, we're work-focused in our prayers, we kind of roll out the shopping list prayer. That's okay. But in a sense, maybe we're still coming to terms with how God runs his ballpark and what it is what it means to pray according to his will, what matters to him most, what's closest to his heart, so we'd be more like him, and live like him, love like him. We can pray confidently because God hears us, because Jesus has come and connected us with the Father, and we're called here to pray for the things that are on God's heart, that we would love like Jesus, have the mind like Jesus. And following out of that, the second thing we're to do is we live as God's people, rooted in truth, established and to grow in love and to flourish, we are to learn securely. Verse 16 through 18. Verse 16 to 18 really are all about learning securely not to sin because you're so secure in Christ, rooted in the heart of God. We get a hint about the will of God when the prayer, our prayers turn to our brothers and sisters in verse 16. We can pray about anything, of course, but John urges us here, to use our power for the good of others, in particular for those caught in sin that God would give them life. Have a look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask that God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't bring death. There is sin that brings death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. In verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that does not bring death. I've been praying lately for all kinds of people that God would give them life and I've been starting to see it. There's a girl in, I'm, I'm working with at the moment. She's about to get married. She's, she named Sarah and she's, I'm seeing life growing and growing in her. I know some of you have been praying for me along these lines and I've seen extraordinary, miraculous kind of life coming back into me. And again, I think we often blunt these verses by fixating on the distinction between the sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't lead to death. But before we get to that, try and feel John's joyful optimism here at these verses. 
that God gives life to sinners and that we can bring others and our own screw-ups before God confidently. Try it this week. I challenge you, every day this week, pray for someone you know that God would give them life. Pray for a Christian brother or sister that they would know life rather than the deceitfulness of sin. Pick a brother, pick a sister who you are desperately concerned for and pray that God would give fresh life to them, renewed sense of his grace. Again, we're being invited to have confidence alongside God in this prayer. That may be new for you. If it is, what a great way to begin praying for one another. That's love. Before, when we have a look at this idea of the sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't lead to death, some of you might come from a Roman Catholic background, perhaps, and you're familiar with the idea of mortal sins and venial sins, mortal sins that lead to death and the trivial ones that don't lead to death, but you've got to kind of do all kinds of penance and work to kind of get over and get right with God again. Often people use this passage to make that distinction. Uh, To be blunt, I think that's rubbish. It misses the point. John doesn't really divide sins by severity here. That's what he means by verse 17 where he says, all unrighteousness is sin. That kind of obliterates attempts to kind of rank sins. See, the attempt to rank sins mean you need to be, you'll end up totally consumed by thinking about sin. I've even seen people come up with flowcharts of like severity of sin with like not too bad sins down the bottom, but then serious sins up the top. What happens if you end up doing that? It's a terrible thing to do. What happens if you end up doing that is you sort of go, well, I'm just down here, so they're not that bad. You know, you sort of deceive yourself that sin's actually not that bad and, you know, I don't have to worry about those. Or you get up here and you go, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm in mortal danger. You know, that's, that's not what John's saying. It's outright wrong. John wants you to have confidence before God. He wants you to have life instead of sin. And it follows that for John, the only kind of sin that would lead to death is to reject Jesus, his son. Chapter 5, verse 12. The one who has the son has life, but the one who does not have the son does not have life. Why? If you're not interested in Jesus, then you cut yourself off from God's way that will bring you life. There's no plan B. So what does John say in verse 16 that you're not bound to pray about that kind of sin that leads to death? Well, I think John does something really kind for you and for me here. I think he means that you shouldn't finally feel responsible for the person who rejects Jesus. Your prayer is not at fault if someone doesn't have the Son. The people that John is writing to have lived through this, haven't they? They've seen who they formerly called their brothers and sisters in Christ walk away, leave Jesus behind to follow what they would say were better things. And John kind of releases those who are left. If he'd only written the first part of verse 16, it would have tortured these people. Those they've prayed for but have walked away and have stayed away. God's secret will sometimes allows for people to reject Christ Imagine the mental turmoil as people kept praying and praying, but their friends weren't given new life in Christ Jesus. I believe what John is saying here to these people in the original day, 1890, and to us today, your prayers aren't faulty. God has heard your prayers for those you know who don't know Jesus Christ and therefore don't have life. 
but then he frees us from the responsibility. It's between them and God. I know that many of you are praying for people you know and love who don't know Jesus, and that's encouraged elsewhere, all over the Bible, and you're doing a great thing. Keep praying for people. But if that person never comes to new life in Jesus Christ, it it will leave you feeling sad. It leaves me feeling sad. But John is saying here, it's not your fault. Your prayers aren't defective. Whatever has gone wrong in that relationship between God and that person is a mystery. Be sad, but don't feel guilty, don't feel defective, don't feel responsible. And verse 18 actually reminds us of what John worked over in chapter 2 and verse 3 of this letter, that Jesus works to rescue people from sin and those who respond to him change in ways that mean they can no longer rest with sinning on and on and on in the same way. If you've come to Christ, the responsibility we have is to put sin to death and live for righteousness. Of course, the evil one will try and harm you. He'll try and make you think that your sins are too bad, too complex, too constant, that they will lead to your death and that God rejects you. But the one who is born of God keeps you safe keeps you safe. The evil one cannot harm them. Have a look. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God, God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The evil one cannot harm you if you're in Christ. It is Christ who keeps God's children safe, so that Satan literally cannot fasten himself to you. He may well attack you as a child of God, but he cannot succeed in getting you back into his grip. That is wonderful assurance. That is beautiful confidence. That's where the world is. Verse 19, in the grip of the evil one. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. In the grip of the evil one. But the church is kept safe by the eternal son. Hear Jesus' own words. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. One, John chapter 10. Wow. As you and I in Christ, as we struggle against sin, the sin that keeps coming up in our lives day after day, we do it with confidence. We struggle with confidence, not despair. Our protector is stronger than our enemy. Our protector is more vigilant and more concerned than we will ever be. We know this is true and so rejoice in it. Live in the experience of it by faith. In Christ, God has you at his heart. Know that. Love that. Live that. It's great assurance. And in that light, let's be utterly devoted to Jesus. The final verses of this letter. The final verses, verses 19 through 21, people often find a little bit strange, especially how John lands the letter in verse 21. Little children, guard yourself from idols. It's an odd way, you know, none of this sort of like, thanks for listening, may the grace of God go with you, or anything like that. It's sort of this, dear children, keep yourselves, guard yourselves from idols. Has John suddenly changed the subject? I think actually this final verse is almost like the summary verse of the whole letter. 
Don't chase after false love. Follow true love, God himself. Don't sell yourself short for false things. Live for Jesus, the truth. I think if we think that it's a sort of a weird way to end and sort of to bring up idols, perhaps we have a shallow image of what an idol actually is. If you like me, when you think about idols, your mind sort of shoots to statues and shrines, you know, big ones and small ones and things like that, yeah? We tend to look down on people who are sort of deluded and poor and sort of following those kinds of things. We're too, you know, advanced for things like that. Of course, millions of people around the world remain highly attached to literal idols. And if we were Christians in those cultures as well, it would seem really obvious way to end the letter about truth and love by sort of bringing up the false love of idolatry, mistaken love. But the key to this final verse really came back in chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, the real idol, where John writes in chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. That's the idol. When we're controlled by our desires, our false love displaces our love for God and each other. And all day long we go thinking about other loves without ever thinking about how much God has loved us and his love for us in his son, Jesus Christ. So the little statue versions of them just reiterate and reaffirm our false loves. Back in chapter 5, in contrast, John wants you to know that you are a child of God. Verse 19. The people whom we crave status from, the pride of life, the people we crave status from, they don't care for us. The experiences that we long for, the lust of the flesh, they don't love us. The next object of our desires, the lust of our eyes, they won't take us into their heart. For that matter, for people like you and for me, that the next successful career move, the most next productive ministry activity that I sort of get involved with, the next round-the-world trip, the next European car, the next renovation won't give you what you need. The evil one who tweaks the world's obsessions day by day cares nothing for you. Nothing for you. Our idols don't love us. An idol is whatever displaces true love with false love. What's the solution? Grace. The grace of God. We know that we are the children of God. We are his adopted children. I read in The Economist this week that Australia is the second best place in the world to be born. Isn't that amazing? Switzerland's always going to get number one. Um, we're always never, we're gonna, never going to kick them off. But Australia is the second best place in the world to be born with its privilege, with its beaches, with its education, with its health. It's a great place to be born. But there is no better place to be born than to be born in God, to be a child of God. Australia cannot offer you eternal life. Jesus can offer you eternal life. We know that we are children of God, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life.
So kids of the king, keep yourselves from idols. Grace has freed you from attaching your identity, meaning, purpose, and inner peace to anything but the unshakable love of King Jesus. And so pray, confidently asking God to get rid from your life of all those things which you would cling to that aren't Christ Jesus, where you put your hope. See, John begins his letter with his intention to make your and my joy complete by sharing with others what he's seen, what he's heard, what he's touched, what he's smelt, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And joy becomes complete when your false loves are dislodged and you're free to flourish as a child of God. God loves you in Christ and gives you eternal life. That's grace. So as we conclude, let us be men and women who know that we're radically rooted in the heart of God. And so pray confidently. Learn not to sin secure in the clutches of Jesus and so devote yourself to following him. And all that would be good to give God your heart in response to how much he has placed you in his. Let me pray. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this letter of 1 John. Father, we pray with thanks that in Christ we, are so, we cannot get any closer to you. Father, we thank you for the gift of confident prayer. Father, help us to put sin to death and to live to righteousness and so devote ourselves to following Christ. So, Father, help us to pray, to learn, to rejoice, and to devote ourselves to your service. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.